0: I'm proud that that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. I've written the book, Unpickled Holiday Survival Guide. It's available now on Amazon. I am also the writer of the Unpickled blog, where I've been telling my story of life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety in 2011. I tell my story there and I hold space for your stories here. Today on the program our guest is Robin. Now, Robin's path to addiction was the result of self-medicating severe chronic pain and the result was a battle that nearly took her life and it required a long road of struggles before getting sober for good. Today Robin has a full life that includes a custom art business and connection with others. Robin, welcome to the Bubble Hour. Hello, thank you. I'm excited I'm to so be here. Oh, I'm glad you're here. I'm really glad you're here. You wrote in and offered to share your story, and I'm glad you did because uh, you did not have an easy road, and I think it almost (laughs) seems that addiction kind of took you by surprise, and uh, Mm -hmm. I feel like there's people that need to hear a story like yours, Um, so I'm really looking forward to
2: your share today. Oh, thank you. Okay, so i just get right into it then, right? Yeah. <laughs>
1: <Okay>. <laughs> Tell us about yourself. All right, then I'll do that.
2: I was raised by happy, healthy, wonderful parents. I'm the oldest of three girls. And um, we lived in, um, in the Bible Belt, where it was the tightest in Oklahoma. Actually, we're about 30 minutes northeast of Tulsa area. And one summer, I'm babysitting. I'm watching my younger sisters. So I'm probably 14 years old. And We're watching I Love Lucy, and that episode came on where she was drinking the, I can't even say it, vitamin medicine, whatever stuff, where she's getting drunk as she's drinking (laughs) the cough medicine, and we're laughing. We're all dying laughing, and humor was huge in our family, and it still is, and having a good time, and I thought, you know what? I'm pretty sure I saw a bottle of wine above the washer and dryer in our utility room. And again, I'm babysitting, so my parents aren't there. In fact, my mom was church secretary. I raised, again, raised in a really good, clean, living kind of home. <laughs> Mom's church secretary. I don't even know why we had the bottle of wine. I go to the utility room, pull this bottle of wine down, and you can tell they were not wine drinkers because it was in a, it was not a temperature-controlled room above a dryer, and it was already open. So Lord knows how long it had been opened. Pulled it down, poured a glass of wine for me and my younger sister. And I said, Hey, Lenny, come in here and have a drink of this grape juice. And she did, of course. And then I go, Huh, you can't tell on me. You just drank wine. (laughs) So obviously, I was already manipulating at an early age. I drank that wine, whatever was left in my little 80 pound body, drank that wine. And I don't remember being funny. I don't remember doing anything silly, but I do remember the ending. And I was, I locked myself in the bathroom. Crying, as my parents came home, they're on the other side of the door, going, "Oh my gosh, why did she do this?" You know, "You're supposed to be responsible of your sisters," and and I hope you feel bad and that kind of thing. So it was a lot of shame. <laughs> Not, "Are you okay?" But it was a lot of shame. And um, in fact, my that would be my first drink, and then my last one would probably end up the same way. I never really drank in high school. I did, I did a few times from a small town, like I said. If I did go to a party, I put beer in my Coke can because I was terrified of consequences of my parents finding out or that I get kicked off the pom-pom squad, that kind of thing. And also because everybody knew everybody's business there. In fact, I remember one time the cops came to a party and one of the police officers looked at me and he said, hey, Robin, I know your parents go home or I'll call them right now. So, yeah, again, clear. We were kind of um, raised with that. What will people think? What will people think of me kind of thing? My job, it was obvious to me at a young age, was to look pretty and be a nice, good girl and try really hard to be a success at everything I did, which is, you know, obviously very realistic, right? Whatever. Um, (laughs) Then I went on to college. I went to the state school. I found out I was really good at throwing parties. You know, now I'm out from under my parents' wing. And I'm doing whatever I want, whenever I want. And I am social chair of my pledge class and my sorority. Later would become social chair of, you know, the members and then even little sisters and other organizations. I was really, really good at getting people together. And I was a massive people pleaser and overachiever. If something was great, it had to be better the next time. You know, I was also kind of raised with um, what did you do to deserve this? So something good happened to me. It was what did you do to de- to deserve that? Or if something bad happened, the same. And if something great happened, well, what are you going to do next time to make it better? So it was kind of like it was never good enough. So even in college, I'm always like, everything's got to be big. I've got to throw the biggest parties. I've got to get all these people together. And some of that was really, really fun. And anyway, um, from college, I was also an art student. I graduated with graphic design degrees and journalism. Journalism and marketing and all that, and um, so it was kind of cool. I could play both sides. I could be art student one day and a sorority girl the next day, and it kind of carried into my adult life. I married my high school sweetheart. He was this very nice, normal guy. We had two beautiful girls, and I lived out in the suburbs of Houston, Texas. And again, I just didn't quite fit. Like nothing just felt right, and. I worked out of my house doing design work, and then eventually I started to do illustration work. I always had this feeling like there was something more I should be doing or something more I could do. It was like nothing was ever good enough, which was kind of unfortunate. That's how I felt. I mean, I guess it made me try harder and do well, and I usually did well. If I tried really hard at something, I usually got it. I usually achieved that. If it was a hurdle, I I could do it. But it was a lot of pleasing and performing. I'm not sure who I was doing that for. I started my illustration career. I am a professional illustrator. I felt very empowered. I started joining these organizations in Houston, uh, like, say, for illustrators of Houston. And then then one organization in particular had quite a few members. I don't know, 300, 500 members. And it was uh, everything from copywriters graphic designers, photographers, and like myself, I was an illustrator. And there, you know, I go to these events and I was a rock star, at least in my head. <laughs> you know, I was talented, I was at the time in my life I was young, a pretty young lady and super sociable and I loved every minute of it. But I'd come home and then I would be this disappointing mom, you know, I didn't fold the clothes right or I didn't put the mail where it was supposed to be. It was just, it didn't feel right. And then I started feeling guilty that I would go to these mixers. But again, I was kind of drawn to the party. I drank more at these things than most people. I stayed later than most people, but I made this thing in my head that it was, well, that was my job. I was social chair. <laughs> you know, I've, I've got to start the party and end the party. I actually had some really great networking. The the whole disappointment of not living up to the perfect mom and the burbs thing Kind of snapped at one point, and I eventually divorced my Mr. Perfect Engineer husband, much to the shock of my family. You know, why aren't you happy? Everything looks perfect from the outside, and and I drank. He and I drank, but not alcoholically. Also, I had young children. I mean, we had our first child um, within 12 months of being married. I think in three months I found out I was pregnant, so I went straight from college girl to mom. And then had another child five years later So I didn't really I definitely didn't drink alcoholically But I drank and I drank to have fun And sometimes I drank to get drunk After I divorced him I met a, we'll call him a tall, dark, handsome And mysterious art director At one of my events We met drinking, we got married, drunk And we kind of stayed that way for years Um, By the way, I would learn That mysterious is code for secrets He could be pretty dark At times and very, very passionate. He was never, ever boring, uh, so be careful what you wish for. I guess I thought that my happy, bright personality could rub off on him. I've heard that women marry men expecting to change them, and men marry women, women expecting them to never change. We partied, we traveled, we entertained very, very well. And I drink a lot more. I mean, this guy never told me no. If we woke up Sunday morning with a hangover, it'd be like, wow, let's go have brunch. And I'm like, hell yeah, this is my kind of guy. You know, I was raised where everything was a no, and you should be ashamed of everything you do wrong. And then to somebody saying, hey, it's on. Let's, have, let's throw the best party ever. And we did. We threw great parties. We, like I said, traveled, entertained. In the meantime, I have joint custody of my daughter's. So I'm still doing that dual life thing. One day I am a newly wed artist, married to an art director, and we're throwing great parties and feeling fabulous about ourselves. And the next day I could be a great mom. And I I really put a lot into my girls when I had them. So. I was all about being a mom, or all about you know it was all or nothing kind of how how we addicts and alcoholics can be. It seemed like the best of both worlds, I guess. I I even started teaching at a couple well well known universities here in um, in Texas, not not in Houston. And I was teaching at a couple of places. I'm teaching illustration. I'm winning awards. I'm feeling like my, my career is just awesome. But our family life at home was incredibly strained. My oldest daughter, Hope, really liked, really liked the art director husband because he was Mr. Cool and he never got in her business. She's probably about, I don't know, 13 years old. My youngest daughter, Zoe, absolutely hated him because she thought he was cold and never cared about her. And actually, both of those statements are true. I would do my best to keep the peace and make everybody happy during the day. Uh, you know, the kids would come home and I try to make everything fine. And then, uh, or, or try to make sure, or take his temperature during the day. And I was just a nervous wreck. I would be so rattled by the end of the end of the day that I would drink late at night when everybody was in bed. It was kind of like I had this, like, I didn't want to go to bed. I don't know what it was. Like I'd stay up and, and drink until I was just almost passed out. Um, the tension was, was really sick, um, but I couldn't complain because I felt like that would be admitting that I made a bad decision. Um, you know, I kind of had to own this life and I was going to make it better because I always did because I was a little Miss Overachiever and Miss Happy Pants and that's what I did, right? One night, uh, the art director and I were asked to entertain judges that had come into Houston. We took them out for martinis, had a good time, and um, back then, it would be if we went out and maybe let's say midway into the night, one of us would look at each other and say, Hey, you're at your driver. And, you know, and so that would be code for, okay, I'm going to reel in my drinks and drink some water and, uh, the other person can drink more. So that night I'm like, all right, tag, you're it. <laughs> so that's kind of how we did things. And he was definitely drinking, but I was definitely drunk. We got in the car and I remember kicking back, um, the seat, and kicking off my high heels and leaning back, and him saying, "We're going to hit, we're going to hit, we're going to hit," and I'm like, "What?" And by the time I look up, we ran into that concrete barrier. We're going about 70 miles an hour on um, 59 in Houston, and Houston's really, really a lot heavy traffic. It's right there at 610 and 59. The people know where it is. It's kind of a, a tense spot, and I can still to this day like hear the the sound, the whooshing of the cars going by and the ambulance and people honking and him just rushing around. And I kept moving my ankle thinking, okay, I'm okay. I'm okay. You know, I, I'm okay. And I kept saying, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm, I'm clearly in shock. Oh, by the way, he wasn't hurt at all. <laughs> and I was very hurt. Um, the ambulance guy comes, and he's yelling through the window, you know, we're going to pull you out the back. And so they duct tape me, and he's like, stop moving your leg. Your ankle is completely exposed and crushed. Stop moving your leg. And again, I'm still like, I'm fine. I'm fine. I remember I put my hand down on my thigh, and it moved in two different places. And I'm like, whoa, okay. All right. Uh, I'll do whatever you say. They duct tape me, pulled me out the back of the car, put me in the ambulance, and pulled out literally just like a Home Depot drill and drill two, two, two by fours to my leg to keep it stable. I don't even remember that hurting. I was just terrified. But again, I'm acting like everything's okay. We get to the ER, you know, and then I find out what all's wrong with me. I spent nine days in ICU. I could hear oh, this is gross and smell people dying all around me. It was absolutely terrifying. And I would go in and out of medication my ankle burst open, it was an open fracture. My femur broke in half. There were vertebrae in my spine, my lower spine, that smushed, they said, like a jelly donut. My ribs were cracked from the seatbelt, thank God I was wearing, and then my left arm burst from the airbag. But my drawing hand and my head, were they were fine. But it was kind of like, picture yourself doing a passenger break, right? So I put my right foot out to break, even though I wasn't driving and so all that part of my body crunched. And I would do this thing where my back would spasm so bad it would arch off the table and shake. And it was horrible. And they're giving me medicine and and it was very traumatic and it was horrible. And every time I'd come to and, you know, they'd ask the doctors to ask questions. And that was the first time anybody ever said to me, Are you a daily drinker? And literally I was drunk when I came in. And I'm like, What? A daily drinker? And I thought, No. And I started thinking about it and he goes, are you sure? Because I think my blood pressure was off the charts. So they could tell something was up. I said, well, maybe, you know, maybe a couple drinks. Of course, everybody says a couple drinks, right? I spent a month in the hospital. I had nine surgeries in less than two weeks. Like every time I would come to it'd be another surgery. And I'm still doing that pleasing and performing, you know, people come in and I'd be like, Cracking jokes about juggling and you know, whatever it might be, and um, you know, saying things like, I'll never win a bikini contest again, ha ha ha, with all these scars, you know. And the truth is, I was terrified, I was scared, but I also had that, I can do this, you know, that get back up on that horse and ride it kind of thing I was raised with. You can do this, you know, you're stronger than this, you can do this, and. And I did, I, um, I had to work every single day at getting better and getting stronger. I leave the hospital, go home by way of an ambulance again. They even brought me home in an ambulance because my leg had to be above my heart for it to heal and all this kind of stuff. And I'm at home, I'm now in a wheelchair for three months. I had a hospital bed in my house for three months. Eventually walked with a cane and and a walker and all that stuff. It's always a joke. I've been old. I've already been old once. (laughs) Um, It was pretty awful, you know. Uh, The pain was awful. Things healed. Your body heals. And obviously, while all that's going on, those three months, I'm not really drinking, but I might have had to drink here or there. I didn't like taking any of the medicines. The thing I was left with was sciatic nerve damage, and I still have it. That accident was twelve years ago and I have twenty four seven chronic pain. Mm-hmm. I kept waiting for this pain to be to be you know, to go away. Okay, when is this gonna heal? When is this gonna heal? Uh, finally the guy who operated on my back, he just looks at me and he goes, yeah, it may never heal. And I just could not accept that. I was like, What what are you talking about that's not gonna heal? You know, I get better. I'm I'm doing everything I'm supposed to be doing and I'm trying really hard and, and he's like, Look, you know, nerves are We don't know. It was this mystery. And I even went to other doctors and they'd say, you have been a victim of a traumatic accident. You have chronic pain. You need to be on your back as much as you are standing up throughout the day. And you need to take your medicine and do what you're supposed to so that we can manage you. I couldn't understand or accept the fact that it would never get better. And so I decided one day, I'm not a drug addict. I'm not going to take any more of these medications. And of course they were giving me everything. I had medicine to go to sleep, medicine to wake up. I had medicine for anxiety because I was so, the psychic nerve pain just rattled me daily. Like I was shaky, It's kind of like having a, um, a sunburn, you know, a sunburn, it hurts if you barely touch it, it stings and it hurts if you really touch it. Right. So it's the spot on the back of my leg, like right where your panty line is, right where you sit down and all that kind of stuff on my left leg. And so it was just unnerving. You know, you can't get away from it. One day I just decided to take stop taking on my medicine. And I remember I poured myself a drink and I got in the pool and I floated. And I was like, Oh my God. (laughs) Yay. You know, I didn't feel it. It didn't hurt. And I just had one drink and I floated during the day. And I'm like, oh, my God, I figured it out. You know, yay, I finally figured it out. This is what I'm going to do. I like to drink. I like to float in the pool. This is awesome. This is going to be my liquid therapy, (laughs) you know. And that's what I would laugh and tell people. I'm doing my liquid therapy today at noon, you know, when I come by the pool. And it was kind of a joke. I did that for probably three years. I kind of took on that victim mentality, that idea that, I need this drink. I figured out what works. This is so much better than drugs. And I got this. I'm, I'm fine. I'm cool. But I went honest to God from being the life of the party to being a massive pity party. You know, I was like, I can't do this. But then when I figured out I could manage it with vodka, I'm like, okay, yeah, I, I'm, I'm on. Also, I worked for myself. So I would illustrate by myself at my home. I had no accountability. So I could be swimming and contemplating my my next assignment, (laughs) so to speak, you know, in my jammies all day long or whatever, and then get my work done. And in fact, back then, I won an award for a series of posters and I was drunk. I mean, I can tell you, I was drunk when I was illustrating those posters and that didn't just win like a local award, that won a national gold award like one of the biggest achievements I've ever made. So that's not really good enforcement to stop drinking for sure. So then I just kind of floated around and I was really tan that summer and uh, the next three years. And, and like I said, it just kind of went from aha, uh-huh, I found the, the cure to just this constant managing pain. I was numbing the pain. You know, when you numb the dark in your life, you also numb the light. My girl suffered. I did a lot of the things that alcoholics do. You know, I hid my booze in vitamin water bottles, thinking it was funny, um, until it wasn't, until it was kind of something I always had to have on me somewhere, my car, and my purse. You know, I'd take out the trash in the middle of the day so nobody would know how many bottles of wine I had, and I was having a lot. I was drinking, and I don't even know the amounts, but whatever they have as much as in a handle of vodka, the one with the handle, the big ones, <laughs> I would drink one of those down to the last couple inches a day and at I would leave those couple of of inches on purpose so that I could get up and have something to get me to the next day just so I could wait till the liquor store opened like I said I, I numbed all the joy in my life all of a sudden I wasn't Miss Happy Pants and I couldn't do everything you know my girls hadn't lived with me very much when I was recovering from the accident and then I'm slowly just get it turning into this I want to say like the soggy vodka infused person. The relationship I had with the art director was horrible. He had so much guilt and shame because he felt responsible for the accident. And it was a drunk driving accident. It was, we never said it out loud. We never talked about it. I never said, so what really even happened because I didn't want to hurt his feelings. He would have like a meltdown if you ask him too many personal questions. He was one of those kind of people that would come into the house and kick over a chair and say, I've just had the worst and blah, 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 and just go into this screaming rant about his day. And everybody in the room is just looking like, what? <laughs> and it was kind of like that. He had a very volatile personality. The tension of seeing me suffer or whatever you want to call it, He couldn't do it. He couldn't look at me. We couldn't talk about it. We couldn't have real conversations. And it was horrible. And so what we do is pretend all day long that everything was just fine. And then in the evening, he was a binge drinker. He'd come home and drink himself to sleep where I'd be coasting all day long. I also remember the first time um, the alcohol, like I realized that I had a problem with alcohol and it was painfully obvious. Like all those were, you know, I had a bad day. Or, um, you know, this is, uh, I, I, if my hands shook or my eyes were watery, it was allergies. Or if, um, you know, I didn't eat something or whatever. And I remember I was at Target and I was shopping and I had bought some wine in my cart. And I looked down and my hands were shaking. And again, it was my nerve damage or it was this or was that. I had a million excuses. My forearms were sweaty and the back of my neck was sweaty. And I was incredibly uncomfortable. And I remember thinking, this can't be alcohol. And I went back and I put up the wine back on the shelves that I bought. And I purchased wine with a screw cap. And the minute I got in the car, I drank an entire bottle of wine before I got home. And eventually, and immediately felt better. I know there's listeners out here that know what I'm talking about. That's when the booze get its, gets its hooks in you. I tell people that don't understand alcoholism, you know, imagine the worst possible hangover you've ever had. And if somebody said, just take a shot and you'll feel better. You take a shot and you feel a little relief until the next time. And then you figure and you tell yourself, okay, it won't be this bad the next time. I just need it for this time. And it just keeps going and going and going. And I would start to drink. It was, it was literally every three hours. I don't care what time of the day it was. In the middle of the night, during the day, if I was at a a Christmas program at my kids, whatever it was, I had booze in my system and it was every three hours. My nights would get worse. I was now unable to manage, you know, when I could be on or off. Um, It was constantly trying to find that sweet spot. I really turned into a massive pity party. My drunks in the evening got really sloppy drunk. My friends were noticing, and I had a friend who apparently, I didn't know this, but her father had had some, he was an alcoholic, and she was in Al-Anon. And so she said, I'm going to take you to a meeting. And I was so sad and lost and scared. And my relationship was horrible. My life was horrible. My kids didn't want to be around me anymore. My business was not going well. I was not awesome anymore. (laughs) I was um, barely keeping it together. You know, pain comes in different forms. It's not just physical pain. You know, you've got emotional pain, psychological pain. You've got spiritual pain. You've got financial pain. I had all of those. And I was doing my best to numb it the way it had worked for me in the past, and it wasn't working anymore. So I said, okay, I'll go with you. And I went. I was shaking. <laughs> my hair would actually shake. My my blood pressure was so bad that my hair would shake to my heartbeat. I look like, I remember my niece saying, Aunt Robin, you look like a chihuahua. (laughs) I'm like, okay. (laughs) Well, it's because, you know, of my medicine or some other lie. But anyway, I went to this meeting and everybody in there is happy. I'm just like, what is wrong with these people? (laughs) You know, why are they happy? You know, I don't get it. And I was miserable, but they seemed happy. And I knew things weren't working and I knew things were getting bad and I just didn't want to say it out loud or or own up to it. So I kept going back and I lived in a place where I could literally walk to a liquor store or walk to this AA meeting. So for weeks I would make this decision and the husband, I would say, you know, I'm trying not to drink. This is my issue, not yours, even though he had one too, but this is what I decided. And I really kind of got it together. Like there was a part I had like maybe three days together. Of course, I got a lot of chips. I remember going back to a meeting and they're like, did you drink? I'm like, well, yeah, of course I had the shakes. And they're like, okay, you have to get another desire chip. And I'm like, really? (laughs) I kept going, eventually got together, learned a few, you know, this too shall pass and things like that and trying my best. I came home, found out one of the big, dark, big secrets that this husband was keeping. And apparently had been keeping it for over 50 years and it was a doozy. And um, just like in the movies, you know, everything freezes and stops and you just, you can't hear. And all you can hear is your heartbeat. And I remember going, Oh my God. And I remember going to get a bottle of vodka. And it was the first time I had drank in four days. And I sat there and I said, I want to hear this. I want to hear what's going on or, or why and understand this and proceeded to drink and say all the mean, horrible, hurtful, Angry, ugly things that he was probably afraid I would say. He said some mean, horrible, hug, horrible things, and it was it was awful. I had a meltdown. He had a meltdown. Um, I got drunk for days. And later on, somebody said, you know, if that had happened to me, I'd get drunk too, but probably not for like four days straight. <laughs> um, I did because that's what alcoholics do. That's what they do when things get get bad. And that's what I did. I think my daughter saw me, called my mother who came and picked me up and took me to rehab. I didn't know anything about rehab. I didn't know anything about that. That was before you heard about rehab on TV and all that kind of stuff. I didn't know what to expect. I remember waking up. Well, first they took me to the hospital. Once I got sober enough to go to rehab, then I went to rehab all the time screaming, look, listen to what he did, you know, look who he is and what he's done and victim, victim, victim you know, um, I kind of come to, and I'm like, wait a second, I don't belong here. You people have problems. (laughs) You know, I'm, I'm okay. You know, I'm an educated adult here. I I have a career and I have students at these universities that need me. I'll be back during, you know, Christmas break. I'll I'll see you soon. Good luck, you know, and left and would go home. And I still went to meetings and I eventually started to relapse again. And I thought maybe I sort of had it under control, but didn't. By now I'm living at my parents' house. I can't live at home. And uh, my mom and dad that both live in Houston, they had divorced. So I would go from my dad's house to my mom's house and eventually drink and eventually lose it and do, do well and do bad and do well and do bad. And I did this for months. In between the first time I went to rehab and the second time I went to rehab, I got two DWIs. Little Miss Perfect Pants Sunshine went to jail (laughs) at 44 years old. Not exactly what I expected to happen. I was drinking and driving. I deserved many, many more than one or two that I did. You know, I always kind of, I'm like, oh, well, wait, here was the story and here's what really happened. Both of them were extreme stories. They were extremely sad, The kind of funny, and so I could always kind of laugh it off how I got caught, and I don't know why I thought that was funny. Now it's definitely not funny. I wanted to be sober. I was starting to realize I could not do this on my own. But I tell you, I I still wanted to drink. I really did. And I think that's the beauty of people that go to rehab and they're done, and they want to get better. Thank God. But for somebody like me, I woke up there, and I was still blaming everybody but myself. Trying to figure out why this was going on, and so, you know, I've heard this line, and it was, it's uh, God is going before me, making cro- crooked places straight. Well, I was making them crooked all over again. I, I my path was not straight, and it was not narrow; it was as squirrely as it could be, and that's just part of my story. It is not a straight, clear story. I didn't figure it out and get better. I think humans. I don't think we change unless it hurts bad enough or maybe that's just me. You know, it's like, ow, that hurt. Ow, that hurt. Ow, that hurt. And finally it's like, oh, maybe I'll go in this direction. I would relapse and get better and relapse and get better. But at least I knew where to go. I needed to go to meetings. Um, I didn't know about things like your podcasts and and, um, online groups or other services. I mean, this is where I was brought and I saw people where it was working, people that they were sober and they were happy and I wanted to be like them because I hadn't been happy in a long time. For listeners, if you're, if you're in that struggle and that in between and trying to manage it, I want you to really think when was the last time you got drunk and there were no consequences? There was none of that. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm going to do okay tonight. I'm just going to have a few drinks here, but then you can't wait to get home to drink more by yourself or, all right, all right, we'll be okay, but let's not overdo it a little bit this much. We still need it, you know, whatever it may be. It's like you're constantly trying to, to keep it together, keep it together. It's been a long time, and I really got real with myself. It had been years since I had a good time drinking with no consequences, where I didn't overdo it or make an idiot out of myself or wake up with, the, oh my God, what did I do last night? You know, this ex husband and I. We would wake up and there would be no words because we both knew that sick feeling that we said something really mean and horrible to each other, but we couldn't remember what it was. But I know that I did something and he knew he did something, so we both wouldn't bust each other. So this dysfunctional silence continued. It was horrible. I did, like I said, rehab back and forth, two DWIs, living at my mom's, living at my dad's. I do great, but I do poorly again it was, I made my my parents, my family, my daughter an absolute nervous wreck. They didn't know what I was going to do next and neither did I. I didn't trust myself. I didn't trust myself at all anymore. Um, I didn't feel like I had a place. I mean, I lost my job. I lost my home. I lost my husband. I lost the ability to see my children. I lost my car eventually. I lost my driver's license. Things were just falling apart. There was the last time I went to go teach, I taught at It was three hours away where I taught. I would get up. I would have a drink to get going. I would drive three hours. I wouldn't drink a lot. I would have a drink, drive three hours, teach my class for three hours. You know, everything was like in three hours. Like my whole life evolved around when am I going to get to drink again, just to manage it, just to manage it. And it was absolutely miserable. So my last class, I actually showed up drunk. Ten years I taught there for ten years. I absolutely loved it. I taught illustration. I love my class. I love my students. I love that connecting with people. I love getting people excited about new things. And here I showed up sloppy drunk to my last class. Absolutely humiliating. You know, I remember going to rehab telling everybody, you know, my life is unmanageable. Absolutely. You know, you should hear what's happened to me. But powerless? No way. You know, I got this. I'm going to get this. You know, I always do. I'm going to, I'm going to succeed. I'm going to do my best. And there's no. it's pretty powerless showing up sloppy like that in front of a bunch of students that are about to graduate. The next day after showing up drunk to my last class, knowing I'd never go back and teach again, I went to an AA related function and it was a barbecue. And I'm still kind of shaky and sick from that day, the day before and I'm at this and I'm again I'm scared. I'm scared to go home. I'm scared to go anywhere. I can't live at my mom and dad's at that point in time. I had blown it too much. And so I had talked to him, this ex husband, for me to live there for just a little while. He had been he was gonna be out of town that weekend. So I said, I'm gonna stay at our town home. I'm just gonna be I just need some time by myself. You know, my mom is constantly worrying about what I'm if I'm drinking or not. And my dad's, you know, he He's constantly worried. So I just need some time alone. Everybody's, you know, up in my business and whatever. And I stayed at this AA function as long as I could. And I remember I was the last one to leave because I was afraid to go home because I had let everybody down. I had let everybody down. I felt so defeated. You know, I was so full of remorse and shame, absolute shame. You know, at, at this point in my life, thank God, I see it as, yes, I was guilty of doing all those things, but I'm not ashamed of myself anymore. But at that time, all I could do was wake up and not hate myself. Not hate what I was about to do or what I was thinking about constantly. I couldn't get it out. And I couldn't grasp the idea that everybody was getting it around me, but I couldn't. It just like I didn't I couldn't I couldn't get the spiritual awakening and I didn't understand. Um, so that, that weekend I'm on myself at this town home and um by myself, which is never good. I'm driving back and it's a Saturday night. And if you live in Texas, it's Saturday night at 845. That means you have 15 minutes before the liquor store closes. I pull over and I did it. I remember I went in and I got my bottle of vodka. But this time, you know, because I'm, I'm trying to be better, I got a bottle, a normal person's bottle of vodka, which in my mind was that wine bottle size, right? So I get my normal size bottle. I went back to the town home by myself. I remember having two drinks and that's it. The next day I would wake up in the ER with a tube down my throat. My eyes would kind of open and shut and open and shut. And I could see all the people that I thought to myself, you know, I'm going to have this drink by myself and nobody will know. know. Nobody will ever know. All those people that I didn't want to know were in that room my daughters, my parents, everybody, my sponsor. Eventually she, I had a sponsor at the time with a, it was awful. My oldest daughter, I can still picture her looking at me with absolute disgust, anger, disgust. My youngest daughter, scared, fearful. My parents completely baffled and I could kind of hear this doctor saying things like, um, if this doesn't look good, You know, I know her eyes are open, but she's not there and things like that. So what happened was, is just those few drinks, I think my liver had finally had enough and just said, screw you, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not doing it anymore. Because the the vodka that I had had that night, they said that there was still booze in that bottle. So I didn't drink all my vodka bottle. I had a few drinks thinking I was going to manage this, like I said, all by myself alone. I went out on the balcony and thank God a neighbor saw me. I had a seizure, went into a coma or whatever, and the ambulance came. She called an ambulance, they came and rescued me, pulled me off the balcony, and took me to the ER. And apparently, they were working on me in the ambulance. And the driver called the time of death, but the the man in the ambulance that was still working on me either didn't hear or didn't respond or didn't quit, thank goodness, and got a heartbeat. So when I pulled up to the hospital, they thought I was dead on arrival, and I was not, or maybe I was, and I came to. I finally wake up in the hospital, like I said, with all this family looking at me, so worried and scared. And I'm so confused because that's not what I had in mind. <laughs> I didn't understand what had happened. I didn't understand where I was. And this nurse looks at me and she said, you know, after they took the tube out and I had all of these hoses and cords and plugs in me and all of this stuff. And I'm trying to figure out what's going on. And she said, did you see the light? Now that's a very Southern thing to say. Well, did you see the light? That's like, well, did you figure it out, stupid? <laughs> you know, and that's what I think she's saying to me. Well, did you see the light? And I'm like, uh, yeah, I guess I shouldn't drink anymore. And she goes, No, honey. You came in here, you were not breathing. Your heart was not beating. And I just completely dumbfounded. And I'm now I'm shaken. I'm sick. I'm weak. And I'm looking at her like I died. And I'll tell you what, Jean. People have asked me, you know, did you have this experience of afterlife experience or after death or whatever? Anyway, you know, what was that like when you died? Do you remember what happened to you after you died? And I don't know. You know, if I went to heaven, hell, if I went anyplace else, I don't know. I was drunk. You know, if I had a conversation with God, I don't remember it. And that sort of, well, there's no sort of the survivor's guilt from that
0: oh my God,
2: I just, I couldn't believe that happened. And I had no memory. I have no memory of this. So when people tell me this, the story, when my parents told me about this and my daughters and all this stuff, it's like, I have no memory of this. So I got it together. I went back to the rehab. I said, oh my God, I know nothing. Please help me. Let me take every class I could possibly take. I went to grief counseling. I went to discounseling. I went to every, everything, I stayed late. I went to every kind of aftercare, beforecare, duringcare I could take, I could do because I just couldn't believe that things had gotten as bad as that. Like before when I would say, you know, my life is unmanageable, but I'm not powerless. There is nothing more powerless than drinking yourself to death. That's pretty powerless. Mm-hmm. So it was time to get it together. <laughs> Um, it was time to do exactly what I was told to do. It was time. And I went, I'm going to a halfway house because my parents didn't want me to live with them. They didn't want me to die in their house. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to do it. So I went to a halfway house, which is, we should call it a um, sober living community for women. <laughs> I figured, you know, I'd lived in a sorority. I can handle 13 ladies and two and a half bathrooms. Sure. And one, in one house. Um, I lived there for three months. I said, I'm just as sick as everybody else. I'm not going to be large and in charge. I am not going to um, try to be funny or smart or this or that. I'm just going to sit and be. I was another lady with big issues just like everybody else. And I remember whenever the, we'll call her the house mom, she came and picked me up a rehab to take me to this, this halfway house. She picks me up and she says, um, you know, I'm getting my things together. And she had that rough that rough smoker's voice. <laughs> she goes, "Well, honey, let's get it together. I see your birthdays tomorrow on your paperwork." And I'm like, "Yeah, I get to, I'm going to a halfway house on my birthday. Whoa. you know, again the whole pity party thing." And she goes, "Girl, you get to live another day." <laughs> <laughs> And to this day, if I'm doing something that's less than pleasant, like, I don't know, changing my grandson's diaper or something, I go, I get to change another dirty diaper, you know, things like that. So that's been kind of a joke in our household that I hold very dear. Yes, I get to live another day. And so from there, I started thinking a little bit differently, like being an observer and not just being in the middle of everything and not trying to be large in charge. And I listened and followed directions and then <laughs> i uh, my my sponsor just wasn't she wasn't meeting with me she she was a great person she lived on she lived an hour away i didn't have a car i lived in this place i needed a lot of attention <laughs> because i had nothing else to do but live there and go to meetings all day long that's when i started um doing uh getting books. And one of my first books I would read, all, I just read as much recovery information as possible. I just flooded my brain with as much information as I could and realizing I was completely lost. Like I was so spiritually lost and emotionally and mentally. I, I didn't trust myself. I, I, I had so many things taken that, and they weren't taken. I gave them up. That I didn't even know who I was anymore. Like I didn't know what I valued anymore. I just was trying to survive and not screw up every day. And so I started reading all these Hazleton books and recovery books. And I got my hands on the very first Brene Brown book seven, no, seven and a half years ago when she first came out. Oh my God, that just changed my thinking. It was still the same problems, but I saw them differently. And I saw myself with a little more, self-worth. I decided I needed help. And with the grace of God, I can do this one step at a time. And I was so scrambled and so lost. I was so willing to do whatever it took to be better. I knew what better was. And I was afraid of who I was and what I was, had to come. And I wanted, I wanted my gifts back. I wanted my life back. And I worked really hard at it. I wanted all these things back and I couldn't I couldn't put my hands on them. I, I felt like they were so far away that I had done so much damage. And one night my um my youngest daughter and my mom and her husband came to pick me up and I was gonna spend the weekend with them and for whatever reason I have no idea why, but we went by my girl's dad's house and he had remarried and he had this big beautiful house with this new you know, younger wife and this brand new baby. And we go in there to say hi to their new baby. But I remember looking at this huge house. I'm living in a halfway house. I'm starting the pity party again. poor me. Life's just sucked for me. I made all these bad choices. You know, I left the nice, normal guy. And boy, am I an idiot, you know, just beating myself up. And I didn't like the way I felt. And I'm in their house. And I go to get a glass of water and... I got this glass and I hit the, the ice machine. And when it went clink, clink in the glass, my daughters know that sound. They, that means mom's drinking. So my daughter looks down from upstairs from the balcony and sees me in the kitchen getting a glass with ice in it. And man, two seconds later, I have tequila in that glass and I've already downed it. I freaking died, you know, four months later. And here I am doing this because, because I didn't like the way I felt. I wanted to change the way I felt. I didn't have time to call my sponsor or, you know, reflect on the steps or any of those things or meditate. It was a total gut reaction. Boom, boom, boom. I don't like the way I feel. I'm getting a glass of water. Ooh, there's booze. And I drink it. I went straight to the bathroom. My daughters come screaming down. My youngest one's screaming from upstairs. Mom, no. Talk about busted. Here I am in front of my ex-husband, my mom my daughter, I'm in the bathroom crying and my youngest daughter is going, why, why, why did you do it again? Why? And it was horrible. It was horrible. And I couldn't, I couldn't answer why. In fact, I was sick. I was sick and tired of hearing myself make excuses. My back didn't hurt. You know, crazy ex-husband wasn't there to make me feel bad. He wasn't throwing the furniture or throwing a tantrum. There was no reason why I was told in one of these meetings in an AA meeting one time from an old timer, why asking why is like being in a burning house and you're standing there going, why is this house on fire? No, no, no. I'm going to stand here until I figure out why this house caught on fire. <laughs> no, no. You know, you get out, you save yourself. You don't stand there in a the house that's on fire. And I was tired of asking, of explaining why or asking why, you know, why, why am I an alcoholic? Why did this happen to me? I'm, you know, I'm American Indian and Irish. Well, there's some genetics there. Maybe that's why. Or no, maybe it was because, you know, I was a victim of a horrible car accident. Or maybe it's because of a psychic nerve. Or maybe it was because of this terrible relationship. You know what? It really, really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter why. None of those things matter anymore. It just is. I am an alcoholic. My body reacts differently when I drink. And I can't keep doing this anymore. It wasn't fun. It didn't work. And it sure didn't fix anything anymore. I was told in rehab that one of my therapists, she said, you know what? At this point in your life in recovery, you don't run around telling people I'm sorry anymore. You don't go, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. People are sick of hearing that you're sorry. That's when you say, thank you. That's when you say, thank you for loving me. You know, thank you for going to the hospital. Thank you for caring about me. Thank you for giving me a place to sleep. Thank you for believing in me, even when I couldn't believe in myself. Thank you for loving me anyway. And that was my last drink. And that was over seven years ago, October 20th. I went and changed everything. I got a new sponsor. I upped my steps. I went to Joel Olson here. The the church here in Houston got prayed for. You know, I, I did everything, everything I could possibly do because I was afraid to ever go back there again. Once it finally snapped, it didn't matter why. Like I wanted to figure out what the problem was so that I could solve it because I always fix things. I'm a fixer. I wasn't fixing anything and this was a power greater than myself that could only restore me to sanity. That's definitely an AA phrase, but that's what I needed. And that's what happened. I did take it one day at a time. You know, I surrounded myself with good people in recovery. I I did my very best to do the best I could every single day. And I really meant it. I would read, um, You know, recovery books. I would read the big book. I would say my prayers every day. I would wake up and say, Thank you, God, for this beautiful day. And, you know, it's been seven years later, and I still do that. It's a habit, it's a good habit. I believe in a higher power, I believe in God. But back when I was drinking and in my adult life, it was, You know what, God, I know you're there. I was raised that way. Um, You know, I believe in you and all that stuff. But I figure if I don't make eye contact with God, You know, he's not going to notice me. (laughs) But now I was like, please, God, please notice me. Please help me. You know, I can't do this by myself. Uh, It took a long, long, long time. I cleaned up uh, probation. And let's see, I had, by then I had three DWIs. I had three different probations. I have spent countless hours, community service and dollar bills uh, to take care of things, you know I started sponsoring people. Eventually, I became a facilitator at the rehab that I went to. Uh, by the way, the the rehab I did go to is called the Park. It's here in Houston, and they're fantastic. They have a a Saturday, we call it aftercare. And so you have to go to aftercare. You don't have to, but you go to you get to go to aftercare for the first year <laughs> after you leave rehab. I'm not a therapist. I, you know, I don't get paid to go there. It's fallen. It's 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 service work, but I led a group and as God has a funny sense of humor, you know, I get to lead the pain management group. <laughs> so, all my 10 years of teaching and then all this massive pain I've been through, I'm leading the the pain management group in a rehab facility on Saturday mornings. And I did that for five years. I absolutely loved it. And we did things talking about, you know, whether it's mindful meditation, you can call it meditation or prayer or breathing techniques. You know, uh, we learned not to focus on the problem, but the solution. And we all talked about what are we doing solution-wise to manage our pain as opposed to taking medicines and, or drinking. And it is an absolute fact. Like I said, this accident was 12 years ago, and I haven't drank in over seven years. My pain, even though it is 24-7, it is nothing compared to what it was when I was drinking. It is nothing compared to it. It's there. It's like this low, dull sound in my ear as opposed to these loud alarms that would go off all the time, all day long. Alcohol made it worse. It absolutely made it worse. And the pain pills lower people's tolerance for pain and it makes it worse, makes it much worse. I've watched people get off medicines. They were told that they had to take. A doctor said, you must take this to manage your pain and they feel better. It's amazing. I made AA recovery connections. I learned empathy I learned to actually sit in a group and listen to people. <laughs> That's amazing. The recovery community, whether it's AA or a recovery community or whatever, you, whatever it is that, that is helping you to remain sober, you know, you, these things work because they can relate, The other people can relate. You know, the, the prayers of, the, of my family, the tears of my children, the doctor saying you shouldn't do this, the legal system saying you know, you're going to go to jail if you do this, that didn't really work for me, apparently. Um, it was the empathy. It was the shared stories. When we share our stories in, honest, in honesty and to try to connect with other alcoholics, you know it's like we shine some light on this pain. when we actually listen to one another and hold space like you say you do. I think that's wonderful. You know, asking for help is probably one of the bravest things anybody can do in recovery. Taking that help is definitely one of the hardest things I've ever done, but well worth it. You know, it shows courage and self-care. You know, I actually care about myself enough to be better, to do better, to help others, you know. And I, I hope that any listener out there, that they never mistake that for weakness. You know, I thought I was weak because I couldn't get it. I thought I was less than, you know, when I always thought I was greater than and so smart and so powerful and so wonderful. And then I just felt so worthless. But once I started taking some ownership and making a decision, you know, making that decision, all right, you know what? I can't drink anymore. I'm not I don't want to drink anymore. It took a long time, but I got there. Anyway, it, it shows it so self care so that you can help somebody else and share that with somebody else. That's how this works. I have gotten my gifts back. You <laughs> know, not only did I get uh my driver's license back and now I have a, a legitimate um driver's license and a car. That took four years. Talk about one day at a time. Um it did, but you can it can get better. I have uh my family's love and hopefully their respect and trust. At least I respect and trust myself again. That's amazing. My health, it's amazing. When you stop drinking, oh my God, I think I dropped 30 pounds. I gained it later with chocolate, but yeah, I dropped the 30 pounds immediately when I stopped drinking. You know, my, my eyes were clear. My face was so much better. Everybody kept saying, oh my God, you look so happy, you know, and I couldn't help but not smile. It was just, I was happy. You know, I laughed. I enjoyed things. I felt things. You know, we, we try to numb things with alcohol that hurt. And like I said, you numb all this joy in your life. And all of a sudden, I was feeling again. That was awesome. It's not always awesome. Some things you, you feel bad or sad, but it doesn't last forever. My goodness, it passes one day at a time. You know, this two shall pass, all that stuff. So I got my legal things together. I got the love of my family, the trust. They always love me. It's that trust back. My health came back. My liver enzymes are awesome. <laughs> uh, the only thing that didn't come back was my eyesight. I think I was so glazed over all the time. I thought everything, my skin was nice and smooth. I'm like, oh, man, the wrinkles. <laughs> you know? Oh, my God. I still can't see so good. But everything else was so much better. Um, the one thing I, I, oh, and my relationship. So I, I met a guy at a meeting that I had known as a friend for like a year and a half. And eventually start, we started dating. And his name is Will. And um, we've been married now for two, two years. He is also in recovery. He has 12 years. He was also married before. And it's so funny. Oh, and also he was a facilitator. So it's really funny. It's so dramatically different than my last relationship, where if we have an argument, it's not like the drunken throwing things and breaking things and saying horrible things that you hate yourself for the next day. It's things like, my hopes for you are, <laughs> or... um uh, let's see, what I hear you saying is you'd like me to do the dishes <laughs> you know? oh. or I can't make you feel that way. That's your, that's, you know, that's on you. You know, it's so completely different, but it's so much better. You know, back to that, um, you know, women will never change. Men w- marry women thinking they'll never change and all that. We, we, we see clearly, we see each other for who we are right now. You know, I, I couldn't live with who I was I mean, at, the, at the present when I was drinking. It was always, I'll be better when. I'll be better when I lose 15 pounds. I'll be better when I make more money or when I win that gold medal or whatever it may be. And, and Will loves me for who I am right now. I mean, that just blows my mind. You know, he didn't know me when I was younger and beautiful and my skin was perfect. You know, he knows this Robin with the scars, He knows this Robin with the extra, maybe a little bit extra weight from all the chocolate. You know, he loves me for who I am right now. That is a blessing. That's a blessing of recovery. That's a blessing. That's I get to live another day moment. That's a gift of, of being sober, being able to be present. It is a gift to be married to somebody who respects and loves who you are right now today when I couldn't even love myself. I also wanted my clients back. You know, we're talking a serious eight-year hiatus here. They weren't coming back. There's too many talented people in the world, you know. And I was so concerned about, you know, would I be any good. I did odd jobs that were way beneath my education and my skill set to take care of myself between all of this rehab-related conversations up until this point because I couldn't get work again. And I'm not going to say that I couldn't get it. I'm saying it didn't come easy and I didn't really have a place that was mine and my computer set up and my business together. Some, something was blocking me from doing what I did before. You know, I'm a professional illustrator. And when people hear that a woman's an illustrator, they think she's a children's book illustrator. And that's not true at all. Not, I illustrate anything, um, all kinds of things, commercial magazines, products. I just I'd had an agent by then my, my relationship with my agent and God now the toilet, obviously I am, my heart wasn't into getting my career back together. It's like, I didn't either, I didn't think I could, or I didn't know what to do. Or I think I also wanted somehow to wrap recovery with my artwork. And so I thought I'll be an art therapist. That's what I'll be. You know, I kept trying to figure out, well, what will I be today? You know, changing my whole world by then, you know, 45 46 years old and I wanted I wanted to figure out what I wanted to do and I stayed completely open okay God what am I supposed to do now you know you gave me these talents what am I supposed to do now I was just open to anything a friend of mine called me up and said that she wanted a painting of her dog and she'd been on a waiting list for another artist and they hadn't got back with her and would I do it and Miss Confident Self said well of course I can paint your dog sure yeah look, no problem So I get this canvas and I'm like, oh, my God, I haven't painted in forever. You know, when I drank, I couldn't even put on mascara. My hands shook so bad. But my illustration work was all done. It was all digital. It was all the computer. So I could always go back and edit something. But I'm looking at this paint and this huge white canvas and I'm like, oh, my God. And I was really afraid if I could do it or not. And I just started and I'm working on it. And, you know, when you're doing something and you get all involved in the details and then you look back and you're like, oh, my gosh oh my gosh, this is good. And I realized my hands weren't shaking and my eyes weren't blurry and cloudy. And I'm able to see the details and I'm able to paint the details. And I start to get that, you know, where you're by yourself and you're smiling like a goofball and and you're almost embarrassed. You're like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm smiling like this. This is funny. I'm just painting a dog, you know, no big deal. And all of a sudden I start to get the giggles because I'm having so much fun. And then it turns into me just smiling and crying with joy it's like my hands work my I I can still paint I can still make art I can still do this oh my god and it had been mm, three years by then I think I'd been sober for three years and I'm just amazed that it's I can still do it and it still seemed pretty good I finished that painting I delivered it to this person and she like peers up and she's so excited I mean, she's so excited. She's so excited, and she wants to tell everybody about it. And they post it on Facebook. And next thing you know, I've got another order and another order. People want these. This is good. Oh my God, I'm, I'm, I can do this again. One time I was listening to um, an interview with Ray Wiley Hubbard. He's a Texas songwriter and musician. He's awesome. And he's known for being um, in, in recovery. And he said back in the day when he was trying to get sober that uh, the only person he knew with any sobriety was Stevie Ray Vaughan. And he went to Stevie Ray Vaughan and he's like, you know, Stevie, you know, you're you're awesome. You know, you're you're so good at this. And and weren't you afraid that you wouldn't be any good when you got sober? Anyway, that's what I fear. I, I've heard other artists. Are you still any good now that you're sober? You know, because remember, I won that national award drunk doing these posters, these series of posters, and they were really good. And so I'm thinking, I don't know if I can be really good sober. Maybe it will be different. Maybe I don't know. And my illustrations, like I said, I just didn't, I don't know. I just didn't have the heart for it, back. I don't, I don't know what it was. But this painting of this dog, and it was like this new addiction with the praise again. It was like, I feel like I'm back to that whole, is it good? Do you love it? Do you love it? <laughs> you know? And And she loved it. And I loved it. And it was really cool to have this gift that I could give back. But the Stevie Ray Vaughan story goes that when Ray Ray Wiley Hubbard asked him, he said, you know, he said, I'm better than I ever was. Before, when I played music, it was like I was playing with boxing gloves on. You know, like I'm fighting every note. I'm fighting every night to get through the set. But now it's like I've taken those boxing gloves off and I can feel the notes. I can feel the music. And I believe that's how I feel right now. Sounds really cheesy, but I can feel the painting. I can feel the that love or that beauty. You know, I can see beauty. I can see little things. And I don't mean just technically little things, but I can see the little nuances or the little expressions or whatever it may be that's, that's specific to that pet. And I can create these pet portraits for people and it makes them so happy, this connectivity. And if you had told me years ago I'd be painting puppies and kitties, I would have scoffed at you and said, please, I'm not. I don't paint, you know, puppies and kitties, please. You know, I'm a serious illustrator. And here I am doing this and having so much fun. You know, my hand skills are back. They're just completely different than I expected. You know, I wanted all my gifts back. and And now I've noticed that those gifts were always all around me. I just couldn't see them because I was drunk, you know, and they're just wrapped in different packages than I expected. Being sober, I have clear mind, clear eyes. I can actually see and feel those, those, those gifts, open them up and actually share those with other people. That's amazing. I'm, I'm so blessed to feel like I can do something that connects with people and gives them joy. And it's a, God-given talent, and I get to use it. That's awesome, you know? So just like the Stevie Ray Vaughan story, if, if you can actually feel it and connect with it, you know, if anybody's listening that's an artist and they think they've got to be, their mind has to be in a certain place that they're used to, whether, you know, writing music or um, making art or whatever it is that they do, that they have to be in this certain mindset to to create. That's not true. That's a lie. That's a lie that booze or pills or whatever you're doing is telling you. You know, um, cynicism limits you. As an artist, you kind of go, you know, oh, I'm too good for that, or that's not my style, or you're you're even afraid to do something that's too happy. Oh, whatever. I don't care about that anymore. (laughs) I don't care what people think. You know what? This makes me happy. It makes other people happy too, and I'm making a living out of it, and I really, really love it. I don't think I'll be painting just dogs and cats for the rest of my life, but I'm going to do it for now. And I'm going to, I love every minute of it. I'm actually in, sometimes I'm in awe of these abilities that I've been given back because it's not what I had done before. So I don't really have anything to compare it to. It's like, wow, you know, I'll be painting on something and being stuck in the details and walk back. And it just blows my mind that, that it looks like that. And I'm like, wow. And it's not like I'm bragging. It's more like I'm celebrating these gifts that I've been given. It's like, Hey, thanks, God. <laughs> thanks a lot. This is awesome, you know, that I wouldn't have been here if I hadn't have said yes, if I hadn't been open to change. Apparently, my path had to be so crooked and so messed up for me to, to change course because my personality is so, you know, I got this. I'm, I'm in charge. I'm in control. I can make it better. Me, me, me. It's all about my will. You know, I would still be trying to force things to be better. But if hadn't it hadn't just been completely crushed in more ways than one, all these things that I lost or gave or given up, then I wouldn't be where I am now. I'd still be clinging to all these, these dysfunctional things in my life, trying to keep it together constantly in a nervous wreck. Actually, no, I'd be dead. No, I just would be. I mean, obviously, my body doesn't, doesn't do alcohol anymore. I love that I get to feel... I love that I don't need to self-medicate. Even the sad things, I can at least be there and experience them and, and be helpful. I love that I look for solutions now and not the problem. I don't play the victim pity party anymore. I like looking for solutions. And I know that I'm not solutions. I'm not God. But at least I know that I can, I can at least see clearly enough and, and, and know where to turn when things get weird or things get difficult. I'm very grateful that my husband's in recovery and we both have the same set of values. I'm glad that I have values now. (laughs) I'm glad that I'm open to change and I'm not cynical and I'm not jaded. I'm very grateful that I'm in a place where my life is better than any drink I've ever drank in my entire life. My life feels better than any party I've ever thrown, ever. I am forever grateful of recovery and people like you that reach out and try to connect with people and try to help. And I'm very happy that I get to be one of those helpers. And I hope that someday I can um, share these joys and gifts and maybe even do some art projects with some recovery groups. But for now I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing and do the best I can every day to, to be present and that's it
1: oh. Robin, that? thank you so much for sharing your story can you tell our listeners
2: where they can find your artwork and learn more about you? My website is Robin, R-O-B-I-N and then the letter K dot art A-R-T so Robin K dot art I'm also Robin K dot art on YouTube, there is a YouTube channel with me doing some time-lapse paintings, and then robink.art on Instagram. You can find me on Facebook. I think it's different, Pets by Robin K. or something like that. But, um, But, yeah, go to my website, and you can find it all from there.
1: And I can attest to the fact that I have been on your website and have spent Um, a lot of time scrolling through your artwork. It is an absolute joy to behold. And the joy that you feel from doing it is evident in the work. So uh, I I really am grateful to hear your story. I'm glad you're alive. And I'm glad that you you, uh, shared the lessons of recovery with us today. Thank you for being here.
2: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank
1: you. Everyone, I hope you've enjoyed today's conversation with Robin. That's all for this week. Until next time, everyone, please take good care.
0: I own it. I did that. Not proud that that was me. And when I face it, take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from power we Head